So when I read the Old Testament, one of the hard parts for me to understand is idolatry. I think of the idea of somebody actually creating something themselves and then bowing down to it, and it doesn't really make too much sense to me. When I look at the Israelites, the ancient Israelites, they were able to see God's work personally, like not just hearing about it, but actually see God's work happening in front of them. They watched miracles take place, and yet they still bowed down to these idols. And it didn't make any sense to me how you could fashion an idol out of wood and then see God like raining fire down on Mount Sinai and then go and bow down to this other thing, right? Like it didn't, didn't make any sense to me. And so today I want to talk about the story of Mount Sinai. We've been going through a series, Moses' Man on a Mission, and now we've gotten to the point of the story of the golden calf, where the Israelites worship the golden calf. So the Israelites watch God descend down on the mountain, and Moses goes up, and the people get really scared because Moses went up to the mountain, and he took his sweet time coming back down, so they get real scared, and they start worshiping a golden calf. So Moses gets really angry, um, and Moses and God get really angry, and then there's punishment involved. And I don't get how you could worship the golden calf in this situation. And so today, hopefully we can gain some understanding of this situation, and then also see how it applies to us today. Because idolatry is one of those things we think, like, well, we don't bow down and worship idols anymore, so how does this apply to us today? I think of, like, when I think of idols, I commonly the verse that comes to my mind is Isaiah 44, where it says, um, he's talking about, the, the prophet is talking about how someone will go down and cut down a tree, and then they'll make stuff out of the wood. And so he'll, like, maybe make a chair or something, and then some of it he uses in the fire to cook his food. So it says, half of it he burns in the fire, and over the, this half he eats his meat, and he roasts it, and he's satisfied by his food, and he warms himself by this fire he's made with this wood that he uh, got from a tree he chopped down. And he says, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And then the rest of the wood he makes into a god, his idol, and he falls down before it and worships it and prays to it, saying, deliver me, for you are my God. And the prophet just kind of talks about how ridiculous that is. And so, and it seems kind of far removed now, because we think, well, we don't do that. We're not that silly anymore. But I think it's good for us to understand the mentality of people during this time, because if we can understand the mentality of what they were going through, it quickly becomes apparent that we do the same thing. So let's go back a little bit and get some context. Let's remind ourselves so far of what's happened in this story of Moses. So we had the exodus from Egypt. God delivers the people from Egypt. Moses leads them into the wilderness, and they stop at Mount Sinai, and God is going to speak to them. And so with Mount Sinai, uh, you think of this picture. I love any, any sort of artwork that illustrates Mount Sinai is usually a, usually a lot of fun because when you read the story, it really, like you look at this and you think, okay, it's an artistic rendering. It's a little bit exaggerated. It really was something like this when you read about it. The people were actually terrified of what was happening. So it, it really did probably look something like that. It says that there was, in Exodus 19, it says there was thunder and lightning and a thick cloud around the, around the mountain, and there was a loud trumpet. I had never, I've, I've read this passage probably a dozen times, and I don't think I ever noticed the trumpet part. Like, if, if right now we started hearing trumpets, and we don't think, oh, it's from downtown Port Perry or something like that, we start hearing loud trumpets proclaimed from the sky, 
We're probably thinking, oh, Jesus is coming back. Am I, am I okay? <laughs> right? We'd be, we'd be terrified and probably thrilled somewhat, but also partly terrified, right? And so trumpets are actually happening in this moment too. And fire descends down on the mountain. It wasn't some small private experience that somebody was having where they had a miraculous experience and they got to share it with people and the people had to believe in it. They were all witnessing God's dramatic power and glory coming down upon this mountain. But it says the whole camp trembled. And so Moses goes up to the mountain to hear from God. And Moses comes down, giving them the Ten Commandments. And they're terrified of everything that's happening, and they actually don't want to hear from God directly. They want Moses to be an intercessor. So they actually say, like, we don't want to have to deal with all that in, in, in our faces. That's actually really, really scary. So we oftentimes pray, like, oh, God, show me your face, or God, please speak to me. They, they saw God, and they found him terrifying. And they didn't want him speaking to them because of how glorious and awesome he is. They were scared. And so Moses tells them not to be afraid, that God is testing them. And it says that if they fear God, they won't sin against him. And then in Exodus 20, we find this passage. It says, you shall not make for yourselves a carved image. Right? So it's God, through Moses, explaining to the people what he wants from them. And he's like giving some of the rules. It says, you will not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And it speaks more about uh, creating idols in other uh, parts of the law as well. And so Moses comes down from God's glory, and he had been in the presence of God. And it says that his face actually shone. You know when you see angels uh, appear in the uh, Old and New Testament and the people are scared and sometimes even bow down and worship them, right? And the angels typically say like, well, hold on, I'm just an angel, like I'm just a messenger from God. Don't worship me, only God deserves to be worshiped. You know why they usually fear them and why they want to bow down is because the glory of God is still on them and they're reflecting it like a mirror, And so when they look at the angel, they see the glory of God shining off them. And that makes you want to bow down and worship. And so the same thing actually happened to Moses here, where he had um, the glory of God on him that he actually shone when when he came down, it says. And so he comes down out of the presence of God. And I know not, not every Christian gets to experience a really powerful moment of the glory of God in their lives. I pray you all do, but I know not everybody... Um, does. But if you ever have that sort of experience where you can feel the tangible presence of the glory of God, and you see, it's it's not like you see God face to face in the same way that Moses did, but you, you see God face to face in that sense. If you've ever had that, nothing else matters. Everything else in life seems so trivial. If you were to suddenly have your spouse come to you and talk about the finances, and oh no, we're gonna lose the home, right, in that moment, after you've experienced the glory of God, you would be saying, don't worry, God's got it. God's going to take care of it. And you wouldn't just be saying it to kind of like, God's got us, he's in control, let's just have faith. Like you would actually mean it in that moment, even in a serious situation like, oh, we're financially strapped, we're going to lose the home. If you've just been in the presence of God, not even that matters. You just think, God's awesome. He's got it. And so Moses has just come down from the mountain like that. When I, whenever, um, I would say some of the times when I feel God's presence the most is actually when I finished evangelizing to somebody. 
And I come back, I come back from that. And I just got a fire in my soul from the presence of God. And it's just nothing else seems important after that moment, right? People's souls are important. And so Moses comes down from the mountain with this sort of mentality in his mind. He's just been witnessing uh, the glory of God. And he comes down, and the first thing he sees um, is sin, right? And so he gets an all... When, when you're in the glory of God, you kind of get an all-new appreciation for just how disgusting sin is. So if you were to have the day before... Um, in your own life, if you experience the glory of God, the day before, you might find a certain sin kind of enticing, right? You might find it attractive in some way, and you know you're not supposed to, right? Once you've experienced the glory of God, in that moment, it's just, any sort of sin is just so disgusting, it's easy to say no once, when you're encountering God. It's not even tolerable anymore. And so, before the golden calf situation, Moses actually went up and down from the mountain before, So this time, he comes down, and he gives them a bunch of rules that God's laid out, including the rules on idolatry. And then the people say, in response to this, they say, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then they perform a burnt offering ceremony, which kind of solidifies the covenant. It was sort of um, an ancient sort of ritual in the same way that we would have the signing of um, a contract, it's like that. It's, this, it's a similar sort of situation. So they have a burnt offering ceremony where the law is read and the people respond to part of this part of the law saying, yes, we will obey this. And so again, they said, in this sort of a court-like situation, the people said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So it's just like a ceremonial way that they are acknowledging, we know what God wants and we will do it. And so then Moses and Aaron and some of the other leaders, they go and they see God. And it says, um, there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. Just amazing imagery in these passages of what it's like to be in God's presence. And so Moses and Joshua go up to, um, to, to God, and Moses gets the tablets of the Ten Commandments. And it says, actually, in this passage, that God wrote them. And so Aaron and another person were with them. They were in charge of the people while Moses went up. So Moses goes up, and Aaron and some others are in charge of the people while they're gone. And so the glory of God comes on this mountain for six days, and on the seventh day, God calls Moses out of the cloud, and he says the glory of God was on the mountain like fire, and Moses goes up into this cloud for 40 days. So the whole experience is taking over a month where Moses is gone. And during this time, he gets instructions on how to build the tabernacle, how to build altars, how to make the priestly garments, all sort of very uh, religious ceremonial sort of stuff. And he gets instructions on exactly how God wants to be worshipped. And during this time, like I said, Aaron is in charge of the people. And Aaron and his sons are going to be the priests. And so now we're entering into Exodus 32. So let's read it together. So when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, remember again, it was 40 days the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. 
So they were nervous. Moses has taken his time. He's been gone over a month, and they're scared. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that you, that you have in, in your ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. Now, kind of a, a strange situation here. If you've never noticed a part in the story of the Exodus, one of the things God tells the people to do when the Exodus happens is go to your neighbors and borrow all their stuff. And then they take off with it. Right? Kind of a weird story. And so basically, if you, read this, if you read that story, they were going off to worship God in the desert, and they said, we'll come back. It's, it's an interesting story because God knows what's going to happen, right? He knows he's actually delivering them. But God says, to, they say to Pharaoh, we just want to go into the desert and worship God. And then what ends up happening is Pharaoh drives them off, right? Pharaoh gets all upset and he takes off after them to slaughter them. And so in this situation, it would make sense to actually run away. But originally, God's plan is obviously to, to deliver his people. On the human side of things, the original plan was, we're going to go worship and we're going to come back. And so in this sense, God says to them, go and borrow different um, like gold pieces from your neighbors. And so they go to the Egyptians and they borrow a bunch of stuff. And realistically, they could have honored the agreement if they were allowed to do what they said they wanted to do. If they were allowed to just worship God, they could have honored the agreement. But Pharaoh comes, comes out with a wrathful vengeance. So they leave, and they still have all this gold. Basically, God providing for them by letting them steal from their, from their enemies, in a sense. And so God's provision is worked out, so they have a bunch of gold on them. And now these people are taking what is likely, this is speculative, this is just my opinion, but where else are slaves going to get gold? Why do a bunch of slaves have gold with them, right? So now they're taking this gold that they have, which quite likely was God's provision for the people. They are taking what God has provided for them, and they're saying, let's build an idol out of it. <clears throat> and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, do you notice something weird about this story yet? Somebody tell me, how many calves did they, did they make? One. These are your gods. That's weird. Why are they speaking in plural? Does anybody know the word for God in Genesis 1? Elohim. Right? You've probably heard that name before. Elohim is, in Hebrew, the masculine plural for the word God. The Hebrew word for God is El. A little bit of trivia for you. Um, Superman's name is Kal-El. They were working in the Hebrew word for God into Superman's name. A little bit of trivia for you. But um, <laughs> so here, Elohim is the masculine plural for God. That's what word they're using here. They built one thing and then called it Elohim because that's the name of the God they worship. That's what they call God. They call him Elohim. And they say, what do they say? These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Who brought them out of Egypt? The one true God, right? They know who brought them out of Egypt. They've seen him. They can see the, at that moment, they could turn their heads over and see the glory of God coming down on the mountain. They know that's the God that delivered us from Egypt. That's Elohim. 
And now they're saying, hey, this is Elohim here, the God who delivered us from Egypt. He's the one that brought the plagues that split the sea. He's the one that was the cloud of smoke by day, protecting us from the sun, and the pillar of smoke by night, providing light and warmth. These are your gods. And so in Genesis 1, that Elohim is used. It's actually, if you know Hebrew, ancient Hebrew, it's actually grammatically incorrect a lot of the time, where it's a very strange word. If I were to say, um, I was speaking to gods this morning, and he told me that he's the only one to be worshipped, you would say, hold on, you used plural, you should have used singular there. The sentence you just said, I was speaking to gods this morning. That sentence is grammatically incorrect. That's actually the way it works out in Hebrew. It's actually grammatically incorrect in Hebrew. And so here, they're using that same word to talk about this golden calf that they made. And so then, verse 5, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, one thing you'll notice is they are worshiping this calf the way God had told them to worship him. They, are off, they have an idol. They have a burnt sacrifice. They have a peace offering. Right? These are things that God had told them to be doing for him. But more importantly, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. When you see L-O-R-D in your English Bible, and it's all in capitals, what that's referring to is the name Yahweh. So if you've, if you've heard that name tossed around in Christian circles, the name of Yahweh, there are songs that have the name Yahweh in it. I, you might have heard this before. If so, uh, you'll forgive me for explaining the name of God to other people, right? So the, this is actually the name of God. It's in Hebrew, it's Y-H-W-H. In ancient Hebrew, there's no vowels. I know that's, and there's no spaces. It's very confusing. And so in ancient Hebrew, it was Y-H-W-H, likely pronounced Yahweh. And so here, when you see L-O-R-D in capitals, and I checked the Hebrew just to make sure I wasn't teaching falsely this morning. It is Y-H-W-H there. And so here, when it says, this shall be a feast to the Lord, they are using the very name that God had told them was his name, Yahweh. You know the burning bush story, when Moses meets the burning bush, and the burning bush is there, and Moses falls down before it, and he's worshiping it, and this is God speaking to him, telling him, I want you to go and deliver the Israelites, right? In that moment, Moses says to him, says to God in burning bush, who do I say sent me? And God says, I am, right? Grammatically, that makes no sense. Oh, the I am sent me, right? So again, God tends to like to play with grammar a little bit, it seems, and so here, God says, tell them I am has sent you. That I am is Yahweh. It's Y-H-W-H in Hebrew. That's what that word means. And so here, they are using that to the golden calf. And they are saying, tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. And so one thing I ask is, where were all the people saying, no, I don't want to do this? It seems like it was a very large group, if not everybody, wanting to do this. We find out later that the, um, people, the tribe who would be priests didn't do this, and they still wanted to worship God. But it seems like literally everybody is worshiping this golden calf. Everyone in this situation claimed to love God. Everyone had agreed to the deal that God had just made with them. And everyone was swept away by this idolatry. 
So you get the idea where it might be a situation where you think, well, it's not that bad. Everyone else is doing it. Yeah, we're worshiping Yahweh. We're just doing it the way we've been taught before. We do it in worshiping um, this idol that represents Yahweh, right? So it's not that bad. Everyone else is doing it. You just get part of this stream and get swept away by it. You might think we're really fine, um, but there's something in the way of our worship of God. They think they're worshiping God in this moment. So for an example of this, where you see this sort of mentality of everybody getting swept away with it, right? I know um, with my wife, Leah, I asked her for permission to say this, but with my wife, Leah, one of the things that she struggles with is materialism. And so as she wrestles against this, and wrestle is the right word, you don't just think, oh man, this is really hard on me. You wrestle with it daily and fight it off, right? For any sin in our lives. And so with her, as she wrestles with it, She's like, and I, and I help her with that, and she helps me with things, I help her with things, that's marriage, right? And so as she's dealing with this, as she's wrestling with it, she says, but it's normal, everybody else does this, you know? You get swept away with the idolatry. This is normal, everybody else does it. And as she wrestles with it, and as she starts coming out of it more, she started to say, well, why isn't anybody else wrestling with this? Because everybody else is getting swept away with it. And then as she goes even further, she starts to realize, you know what? I don't think people are wrestling with it because I don't think they realize they should be wrestling with it. I think maybe a lot of people struggle with materialism and don't recognize it for the idol that it is. And so as we continue, and the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you've brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the the Lord, saying, um, Uh, the Lord his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. So this is actually Moses arguing Israel's case to try to convince God not to slaughter the people. Another, another very strange uh, story here. And so here, Moses is basically making the argument, God, if you want your name to be glorified, don't wipe them out because everybody else will see that and they'll think you're a monster, basically is what he's saying, is what he's arguing. And so then, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. 
And as soon as he came near the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. So again, Moses has just been in the glory of God, and now he's witnessing pagan idolatry right in front of him. And he gets this righteous anger well up inside of him. And the way he handled it wasn't so righteous, but he has this righteous anger against uh, that. And so remember here, it said these were the tablets that God had actually made. God wrote these ones down, and Moses is smashing them. And so the next time he writes them out, Moses has to do it, which is an interesting part of the story. So then um, he threw the tablets down and he took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it into powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. So that's probably something you didn't notice in this passage before is that Moses makes them drink the gold. I would imagine that wouldn't be very good for you. And Moses said to Aaron... What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let anyone who has gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and this calf came out. Yeah, it's ridiculous. He's, he's making excuses and he's trying to say like, well, maybe, maybe it is God. The calf just comes right out of the fire, you know. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side? In other words, who still actually worships Yahweh? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, thus says the Lord your God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from the gate to the gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each of you at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. Very graphic, right? Oftentimes we avoid these sorts of passages in the Bible. This is how God understands idolatry. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin... But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. So this is interesting that Israel is actually asking for God to forgive the people. And he says, if you won't forgive them, condemn me as well as them. Kind of like he loves the people so much, he's trying to deliver them. He loves them so much, he wants whatever fate they get. And God says, no, the unrighteous will get punished, the righteous will be rewarded. And it's interesting because this actually is something similar to what Paul said. Uh, Paul said something similar to this where he said, if he could, he would allow himself to be damned to hell to bring other people out of that so that they could have salvation. But he knows that's not possible. But now lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. So even after all that, God sends a plague on them too. So these people understood the supernatural. 
They knew what was happening. They could see God. And they get scared. And they weren't experiencing doubt in the same way that we do. Sometimes we experience doubt and we think, oh, is this, is this Christianity stuff really real? I haven't seen God act in a while. Maybe I was just imagining it before, right? No, they are witnessing God's glory right in front of them. And they get scared. They were first-hand witnesses of this. They couldn't doubt the supernatural. So then why are they worshiping this golden calf? We oftentimes look at this and we think, how stupid could you be to be worshiping this calf when you can see the glory of God right there? Don't you think Yahweh is powerful? You can see the fire descending down on the mountain. Don't you appreciate that Yahweh delivered you from Egypt? How stupid could you be? Now, they are stupid, but they're stupid for a different reason than you would think. They weren't doubting Yahweh. They weren't saying, oh, we forget about the God who delivered us from Egypt. They thought they were worshiping Yahweh. They said, hey, this is Elohim. This is Yahweh. Let's worship him. He's the God that delivered us from Egypt. Let's thank him for that. They thought they were worshiping Yahweh. It actually uses that word in that passage where it talks about their worship. They used the word Elohim and they used the word Yahweh, the two names that God gave himself. And they say, you know that Yahweh, the God who delivered us from Egypt, well, this golden calf is him. Let's worship him. Because they thought they were worshiping appropriately in this sense. Now, this might be a new concept to you, but they were worshiping God. They were worshiping the right God in the wrong way. So that might be a new concept to you, but they were worshiping the right God in the wrong way. They were saying, this is Yahweh. Yahweh is the right God. Let's bow down and worship this calf. Wrong way to worship Yahweh. God has told us who he is. God has told us how to receive salvation, and he has told us how to worship him. To change these things to meet our own preferences is idolatry. That's what they were doing here. They were simply worshiping God, and that doesn't mean that you're actually worshiping God. Just because you think you're worshiping God doesn't mean you actually are worshiping God. Does your God look different than God has described himself in the Bible? Sometimes people will take an approach and see the Old Testament God and talk about the New Testament God, and they'll say, oh, my God is is just loving. You know, my God doesn't pour out wrathful judgment on people. My God is is, uh, merciful and gracious and forgiving, right? My God wouldn't do those sorts of things. Well, then you might be worshiping the right God, but in the wrong way. Many people in our culture today want to create God in our own image. There will be portions of the Bible where they'll say, oh, well, that sort of stuff doesn't really apply anymore. You know, that, that's not really the way, that's not really what God meant. That's humans misinterpreting things or something. And they kind of twist religion to make God what they want him to be. They make God more palatable to our culture today. The culturally accepted things, oh, they're not sin anymore. And then you also think about sin, and they say, like, oh, you know all those things that the Bible says I'm supposed to give up? Well, what do you know? That's not part of Christianity anymore, you know? Like, I can, I can create my own rules. They change Christianity to meet their own preferences. And so, on the topic of worshiping God in the wrong way being idolatry, the Samaritans, if you've heard that, na- that name before, the Samaritans were basically, long story short, they were the northern tribe of Israel. 
they were Jews, or not Jews, they were Israelites who had kind of interbred with other, other nations, allowed themselves to get swept up in their religion and their culture and these sorts of things. And they thought they were worshiping the one true God still. They had allowed paganism to pollute their religion, but they thought they were still worshiping the one true God. So when the Jews, the people of Judah, when the Jews say, we are worshiping the one true God, we're going to rebuild the temple and start worshiping Yahweh the way he's supposed to be worshiped, that makes the Samaritans upset because they were worshiping the right God in the wrong way. And the Jews saw that and they said, no, God's told us that's idolatry. And so the Samaritans actually try to stop them from rebuilding the temple and rebuilding Jerusalem. And so you see that story um, in the New Testament where Jesus talks with a Samaritan woman. And she finally realizes this guy's actually a prophet. This guy's actually a big deal. He speaks on God's behalf, right? She doesn't really realize he is God yet, right? And so in this moment, she says, whoa, you're actually a prophet. All right, let me know who's worshiping God correctly. That was the first thing out of her mouth. Is it us Samaritans or is it, or is it you, you Jews? And Jesus basically says, salvation comes from the Jews, right? You're worshiping the right God, but in the wrong way. You are in idolatry right now. And so another example of this, um, we can see cultic temples in Israel. Even today, we can find the ruins of them. And the Israelites were worshiping Yahweh, but they were doing it in a pagan way. So I actually got to go into one of those ancient temples. And so I can show you a little bit of one of these ancient temples where the Israelites were worshiping the right God in the wrong way. I'm in one of the forts of the city of Arad, and this is the only remaining preserved Israelite temple in existence. Now, it would have been a cultic temple. It wasn't supposed to be here. They weren't supposed to build any temples out of Shiloh and Jerusalem, like I said. The layout here is very similar to the layout we find in Canaanite temples, showing that they were probably more given to pagan worship than what God had commanded them. So I'm sitting inside the Holy of Holies of the cultic temple. Now, I don't really feel like I'm disrespecting it because this was actually against God's wishes. Now, here you can see that there's a standing stone on either side. That was probably one of them for Yahweh and one of them for Asherah. The Israelites were known to be worshipping the goddess uh, Asherah, and they probably considered her the wife of Yahweh. There's a few verses. There's Deuteronomy 16, 21 to 22, and also 2 Kings 21, 7, showing that they worshipped the two of them together. Now, in case you couldn't hear because of the, the wind, the, the desert wind coming in, um, this was a temple to Yahweh, and it had a, a Canaanite sort of layout, because they had been influenced by the Canaanites and they weren't building it the way God had instructed them to build. They even had the Holy of Holies, which is obviously supposed to be part of the real temple, where the presence of God dwells, which is where I was sitting there. And I thought, like, am I being blasphemous sitting in the Holy of Holies now? Like, no, it's a cultic temple, it's okay. And so they also had there an altar built out of uncut stones, which is how God told them to build the altar to worship Yahweh. And yet they had an idol, two idols, in the Holy of Holies. So they, there um, used to be stones that they would make. They would have a stone, and they would place that in the holy place, and that would be what represents God. So they had one for Yahweh, and then one for Yahweh's wife, Asherah, where they gave the one true God a wife. And so here, they are worshiping Yahweh, they're even doing some of the things that God had told them to do to worship him, but then they're 
obviously not following some of the other rules, right? Like creating idols, giving a wife to Yahweh, these sorts of things. And so when God gets angry at Israel for idolatry, sometimes they were just flat out worshiping other gods, like worshiping Baal, right? But in, in some situations, they thought they were worshiping Yahweh and were just doing it incorrectly. And it looks like the golden calf situation is one of those cases. So then I said, um, they, the people of Israel did make a big mistake, but it's not necessarily what you think. So what was it? They weren't necessarily leaving Yahweh behind in their own minds. So how were they messing up? They had just finished agreeing to God's terms. Remember they said, God said, don't create a carved image, right? And then they say, everything that you've uh, asked us, we will do. So how were they messing up? They knew God was real. They worshiped God. And they knew what God expected. And yet they didn't follow his commands, Right? So they're trying to worship God. They know what's expected of them. They've agreed to it, and they're just not obeying it. And God said, that's idolatry. So, just for a moment, did you feel like you just got punched in the stomach? Probably because you're applying it to the Israelites, that, that you didn't feel like you got punched in the stomach. Let me read it again and think about yourself, and I think about myself when I read this. They knew God was real, they worshipped God, they knew what God expected, and yet they didn't follow God's commands. And God said, you're in idolatry. This applies to everybody, right? This applies to all of us. The Israelites visibly saw the glory of God on the mountain. They still managed to get involved in idolatry. Why do we think that we aren't susceptible to the same thing? They're seeing God in a more tangible way than we see and yet they fell into idolatry. Why do we think we're free from this sort of thing? In Exodus 33, it says that because of their idolatry, if God goes with them, he will destroy them. His holiness will consume them. In a similar way, sometimes when we're idolatrous, we still say things like, oh, God will go with us and he'll take care of us. Well, what if we're worshiping God the way we feel is best rather than the way he has told us to? Another example of this sort of idolatry, um, where people are thinking they're following God, but they're not, we actually find in Galatians uh, 1, 6 to 9, says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who, you call, who, um, who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but that there are some uh, who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. The thing that stands out here is it says um, that they are deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Do you really think the church in Galatia the person he's writing to here, do you really think they had stopped being Christians? Had you asked somebody in the church of Galatia, are you a Christian? Oh, yes, of course. And yet, what does it say here? You've deserted Christ. <clears throat> the rest of the book looks like it's written to Christians, trying to encourage them in the faith. And yet, it looks like they had gotten swept up in bad teaching, and they thought they were still following Christ, but they weren't. And then another one of the hardest passages in the Bible, one of the things Jesus said, 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Clearly, there are people who think they are worshiping Jesus, but they are mistaken. We can be in idolatry and not know it. We do not decide if we are worshiping God. God does. So what is idolatry for us? I think it can be lots of things. I would say basically the simplest definition of idolatry is God has told us to live one way and worship one way and we choose another. God wants us to represent him on earth. This is one way that God has told us to worship him. We are ambassadors of Jesus Christ. We represent God on earth. And if we represent him falsely, that's bad news. If we aren't acting like Christians, that's not the way God wants us to be, and we are placing something higher than God. And I would say probably the main thing that we're doing in these situations is we are worshiping our comfort. We are placing our comfort above God, and we are worshiping our own comfort at God's expense. Now, we live in Canada, and some, sometimes we, do, we don't think very highly of ourselves, like we don't have very much or something. We live in Canada. We are some of the richest people in the world. There is a reason why God said it is hard for a rich man to enter heaven. We get caught up in the materialism of our, of our culture, and we feel like we deserve nice things. We feel like, I earned this money. I deserve to spend it on myself. Materialism, well, God's, God's okay with uh, me having nice things. There's nothing wrong with that. Everybody else is doing that. Is that the way God has described it in the Bible? You look at the, uh, the parable of the talents. The master gives them some resources, and then he judges them based on how they used them. When they meet God, when they meet the master, who does he say, well done, good and faithful servant to? The one that used them appropriately for his master's benefit. So with our own material wealth, are we using them to build up our own materialism or are we using it for the glory of God? I also think comfort comes into effect with our time. Sometimes we treat our time the same way as our material stuff. We don't want to give God time. We like our time. How, how much time, relatively speaking, compared to other things that we do in life, how much time do we spend in prayer? How much time do we spend reading the word of God? And how much time do we spend helping the church in some way? Typically, we worship God one day a week, and the rest of the time we look like everybody else. And that's not what God has told us a Christian lives like. That's not what God has told us worship is. Another form of comfort is avoiding confrontation. And that's not evangelizing. It's easier to live without any confrontation in our lives. It's, it's hard to have deep conversations with people. What does our culture tell us? Don't talk about uh, politics and religion. Right? You want to have a polite conversation, avoid politics and religion. We're, we're born and raised that way in our culture because we don't want confrontation. It's scary letting people ask the difficult questions. I'm terrified for somebody to bring up some issue that I don't know anything about when I'm talking to them and I look like a fool. So a question for you. Have you shared the gospel with your friends and family? If not, I can guarantee you one of three things is true. 
One, you don't actually love your friends and family. Probably not, number one. Number two, you don't actually believe what the Bible says about hell and about salvation and about evangelism. Might be the case for some of us. Or three, you worship comfort as your idol and you don't want to break out of your comfort zone and actually witness to somebody. <clears throat> Do you worship a God who is forgiving to the repentant and just and wrathful to the unrepentant? If so, do you live like it? You should be acting upon that, and that means evangelism. So, for example, if your coworkers don't know that you're a Christian, that's bad news. That's putting your comfort before God. If you have never, um, and this is a little bit harsher, but if you have never witnessed to a stranger, you're likely putting your comfort before God. Witnessing to strangers, by the way, actually isn't that scary. You can bring it up easily with different questions. It doesn't have to be walking up to a stranger and saying, do you know Jesus, right? You can, you can bring it up with gentle conversation and talk to them. But if you haven't, what's the reason you haven't? Likely because you don't want to have an uncomfortable conversation. You like your comfort. Now, you might be thinking, okay, whoa, this is, this is really heavy, right? This is really hard to hear. I feel that conviction too. Don't, don't picture me up here saying, oh, I'm better than everybody and I don't feel convicted by this, right? I feel the conviction too. As I was making this sermon, I could feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And as I'm preaching it, I feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And you know the Holy Spirit is moving when you get convicted by your own sermon. So guilt and shame, this is something I want, important I want you to get. Guilt and shame are bad. Satan is trying to condemn you if you feel guilt and shame. Guilt and shame just kind of make you feel bad about yourself. They're bad things. Conviction is a good thing. Conviction is different. Conviction leads you to change. It says that the Holy Spirit, um, actually, is the one that brings us conviction. Um, we as Pentecostals love talking about how the Father sent the Holy Spirit to the world, and we love talking about the amazing gifts that he's given us. You know what one of the gifts the Holy Spirit gives us is conviction. In John 16, 8, it says that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Conviction leads us to positive change, and it causes us to become a stronger Christian so that we can submit more to Jesus. And so we all have different idols in our life that we need to cast off. And as we worship God, we should worship God the way he has instructed us to do. We should submit to God and live our lives the way he has told us Christians ought to be living. So let's pray together about this. So God, we thank you for your word, even though it's hard to hear sometimes. We thank you, God, for your examples throughout time where you have uh, dwelt with us, that you have walked with your people, that you have provided salvation and grace and mercy to us. We thank you, Lord, for these things. We pray, Lord, that you would help us and encourage us and teach us to follow the way you have told us to, that we would read the Bible and that we would apply it to our hearts, that we would live out the way you have instructed us to. When we don't, God, I pray that you would convict us all to live more in accordance with the way you have instructed us. We pray against the idolatry in all of our lives, and that you would encourage us to um, say no to temptation wherever it arises. 
And we pray, Lord, that you, we would worship you and glorify your name with every part of our lives, our material possessions, our time, and with our words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.